Today on Ag News Daily. Well, is this is this uh, uh, is this a more permanent kind of thing? And as we go further and further, it seems to be leaning toward the latter more than the former. I'm not going to make that judgment on that, but I think that can have a negative effect on a lot of things. Good afternoon and happy Thursday from the Ag News Daily Podcast. It's Ashton Carr, still live from the NAFB conference, but this time joined by Dawson Schmidt. Dawson, how's your NAFB going? It's going great, Ashton. It's been so far a great experience. Uh, as you and Delaney mentioned, you know, I got a nice scholarship yesterday and I was happy to get that and happy to get introduced to a lot of different people in the industry. Dawson, I just have to brag on the both of us for a second here just because we were doing an interview earlier and we were commended on how much we knew about the industry and our professionalism. So uh, got to say, as uh, two college students, it felt pretty nice to hear that. And for the first time only working in, or seeing each other in person for, I guess, the second time, uh, you know, we got complimented on being a great team, too, for us going around and getting interviews as well. I forgot about that comment, too. So it's just like the energy, it's electric, it feels good to be here, it feels good to be in person and seeing you and Delaney. This is the first time that you and I are recording together in person, so lots of great things happening here, folks, and we have one more day left of the NAFB conference, so stay tuned tomorrow as that's our final episode of us being together here live, but moving right along here talking about some news. Dawson, I know you have some stuff talking about the John Deere strike, or rather the end of the strike. You and I talked to some John Deere reps here earlier today. They declined an interview, but they did say that they were kind of um, happy, I think is what they said exactly, that they were happy that uh, this is coming to an end and that they could find more information at one.deer.com. But you have the details in front of you, I do think so, right Dawson? That's true, Ashton. After a five-week strike that previously rejected a few contracts, about 10,000 John Deere workers have finally are, are finally returning to work after voting 61% to 39% on a new six-year contract between the company and the United Automobile Workers. Chuck Browning, the vice president and director of UAW's Agricultural Implement Department, said in a statement that their members are courageous and willingness to strike in order to attain a better standard of living and more secure retirement resulted in a groundbreaking contract that has really put set the company up for hopefully some better relations down here in the future. Just five days ago, the UAW said that John Deere had made its last and best offer that it was going to give to the workers as well. And so they're pretty elated to hear that they were willing to take that and also going on with better retirement benefits, better health care coverage. And other under the new agreement, workers will have more robust incentive that will pay up to 20% beyond their base pay upon hitting productivity targets. Well, Dawson, that's some good news there. I'm glad that the strike is over and we're going to be seeing those employees get back to their jobs there. But I don't have a whole lot of exciting news today. Things were not moving slowly, rather, that everybody that's reporting on Ag News is here at NAFB. So we're also going to be reporting on exactly what they're reporting on in our interview segments over the next couple of weeks. So I just have a small update here when it comes to bird flu because we've seen a outbreak hit West Africa, specifically at Togo, as this outbreak has killed 1,105 birds of a herd of 3,000 guineas. And I didn't realize that guineas were kind of an all-over creature. I was talking to you earlier about how uh, we had guineas, of course, down in Texas, but wasn't sure if you had guineas in Iowa, but it feels like you and I have the same opinions on guineas. 
Yeah, definitely. Here in Iowa, I mean, there's a lot of people that like guineas. However, my experiences with them are just very annoying birds. <laughs> and so that's about the only thing I know about them as far as what their uses are. Yeah, I don't really know uh, how useful they are either, Dawson. But, I mean, that's still a striking number of birds. They are so going to continue to watch the movement of the bird flu. I keep wanting to say African swine fever. Not really sure why there because they're affecting uh, two different animals. But, Dawson, what other uh, pieces of news do you have for us? Yeah, something I'm keeping my eye on is that Wednesday, President Biden called on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether oil and gas companies are participating in illegal conduct aimed at keeping gas prices higher. We've all seen recently that price price at the gas pump keeps rising and rising and really just with a lot of short supplies in the oil industry. But outside analysts are kind of really skeptical about the FTC being able to find enough evidence to substantiate Mr. Biden's claim. But Biden did write that this this unexplained large gap between the price and unfinished gasoline and the average price at the pump is well above the pre-pandemic average. There's a lot of criticism going around on supply and demand issues, but right now the president is calling on the FTC to consider whether illegal conduct is costing families at the pump. Also here at NAFB, we had Tom Vilsack uh, present at a meeting as well that he did mention, however, that, you know, after going at the FTC and looking at investigating into him, that prices have fallen, I guess, over the last just day here. But um, willing to see, I guess, if that is actually happening around the U.S. and especially in certain areas where, you know, gas is being used a lot and ethanol is also available in different places as well. Yeah, Dawson, I would really enjoy seeing the price of the pump go down a little bit, so I'm going to keep my fingers crossed when it comes to that. But has killed 1,105 birds of a herd of 3,000 guineas. And I didn't realize that guineas were kind of an all-over creature. I was talking to you earlier about how uh, we had guineas, of course, down in Texas, but wasn't sure if you had guineas in Iowa, but it feels like you and I have the same opinions on guineas. Yeah, definitely. Here in Iowa, I mean, there's a lot of people that like guineas. However, my experiences with them are just very annoying birds. And so that's about the only thing I know about them as far as what their uses are. Yeah, I don't really know uh, how useful they are either, Dawson. But, I mean, that's still a striking number of birds. They are so going to continue to watch the movement of the bird flu. I keep wanting to say African swine fever. Not really sure why there because they're affecting uh, two different animals. But, Dawson, what other uh, pieces of news do you have for us? Yeah, something I'm keeping my eye eye on is that Wednesday, President Biden called on the Federal Trade Commission to investigate whether oil and gas companies are participating in illegal conduct aimed at keeping gas prices higher. We've all seen recently that price price at the gas pump keeps rising and rising and really just with a lot of short supplies in the oil industry. But outside analysts are kind of really skeptical about the FTC being able to find enough evidence to substantiate Mr. Biden's claim. But Biden did write that this this unexplained large gap between the price and unfinished gasoline and the average price at the pump is well above the pre-pandemic average. There's a lot of criticism going around on supply and demand issues. But right now, the president is calling on the FTC to consider whether illegal conduct is costing families at the pump. Also here at NAFB, we had Tom Vilsack uh, present at a meeting as well that he did mention, however, that, you know, after going at the FTC and looking at investigating into him, that prices have fallen, I guess, over the last just day here. But um, 
willing to see, I guess, if that is actually happening around the U.S. and especially in certain areas where, you know, gas is being used a lot and ethanol is also available in different places as well. Yeah, Dawson, I would really enjoy seeing the price of the pump go down a little bit, so I'm going to keep my fingers crossed when it comes to that. But another thing that I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed on is whether or not we're going to see some biofuels blending mandates. Earlier today, we saw that the U.S. EPA proposed giving oil refiners more time to prove compliance with the nation's 2020 and 2021 biofuel blending mandates. The move comes, of course, as the EPA is considering industry requests. Several oil refiners have slowed or stopped buying compliance credits in a bet. The EPA would ease their requirements, putting them at risk of hundreds of millions of dollars in liabilities if the agency decides against them. We talked to a representative from RFA earlier today talking about ethanol, uh, the renewable fuel standard, a couple of other things. So everyone just please uh, bear with us as we release this timely news. But this is, I think, another thing that we kind of talked about with them there because this was really breaking the news as we were chatting today. But just another thing I've been uh, keeping my eyes out on here, Dawson. For sure, Ashton. And that's really, like you said, news seems a little bit dry today, and uh, that's really all for me. Well, I just have one other thing that I kind of wanted to hit on here, just an update coming from StoneX Director of Fertilizer, Josh Linville. And he's actually here at NAFB, too. I saw him tweeting about it. Haven't ran into him, but, of course, we have had him on the podcast to talk about the cost of fertilizer. And he says that the costs are likely going to continue rising before leveling off. He told Brownfield Ag News that he's seeing nitrogen prices that are topping $1,300. The global picture is telling him the cost of androgynous is primed to increase further. So it doesn't look like there's really a light at the end of the tunnel that we're able to identify here, but going to continue to watch out for that. But Dawson, it looks like we are both out of news here now. So why do you say we hop into the markets for today? I say we get right into it, and we are seeing a lot of red on the screen, especially in the green market. Just going into it right here, December corn contract futures are down two and a quarter cents to close at 573 flat. The March contract down two and a quarter cents as well to close at 579 and a quarter. On the soybeans, the January contract down 11 and three quarter cents to close at 1265 and a quarter. The March down 11 and three quarters to close at 1276 and a half. Onto the wheat, the December contract is down two and a quarter cent to close at 820, while the March is down two and a quarter cent to close at 830 and three quarters. Going over to the livestock here, live cattle on the December contract up 92 and a half to close at 133.15. The February up 85 to close at 137.25. On to feeder cattle, the January contract up $2.45 to close at 161.375. The March up $2.45 to close at 163.55. On to lean hogs, the December contract is down $1.75 to close at 75.10. The February contract up 15 cents to close at 83.30. Rounding out our markets with the Class 3 dairy milk futures, December contract up 46 cents to close at 1761, while the January is up 46 cents as well to close at 1821. Well, Dawson, with that, let's kick it over to some of the audio that we are sharing from one of the NAFB sessions. Now, 
not seeing anything from the audience. I'll <clears throat> ask, ask something that uh, was has been on the, the minds of a lot of folks in the trade space. Chair, and I'll direct this to you because something that we saw uh, USDR Lighthizer do during the Trump administration was pretty aggressively pursue <coughs> reforms at the World Trade Organization. And uh, sort of the tactic that he used was uh, blocking appointees for new appeal, uh, new appellate judges at that body. And Correct me if I'm wrong, I believe uh, USDR ties has not exactly discontinued that practice. And, and uh, so the, the, the push for aggressive U, uh, WTO reform continues. Wonder, you know, how does that impact the global trading system? Uh, you know, how does that impact the trade cases that uh, the U.S. might bring against other countries or that other countries might bring against the U.S.? What, practically speaking, do we have a functional WTO appellate body? right now as a result of, of these reform pushes? There is no functioning uh, WTO appellate body uh, at the WTO at this point in time. And just so everyone understands, in a dispute, you first take your case before a panel where you present all the facts. Um, that panel makes a decision. And like the U.S. court system, um, a losing party can appeal that to an appellate body. It um, tends to be lawyers. And um, over a period of time, and this goes even before the Trump administration, uh, the U.S. Uh, government, uh, the lawyers primarily at USTR, were concerned as to the um, extent of opinions that the appellate body would take, um, changing actually obligations that are actually written in the Uruguay Round Agreement. So this is a longstanding concern. Bob Lighthizer uh, had the courage, or the backbone, I guess you would say, to say, we're not going to put up with this anymore. We're not going to support any appointments uh, to that appellate body. So once all of the terms of those appellate body judges ended, there's been no appellate body. It hasn't affected um, the U.S. agriculture disputes at this point in time really that much. Of course, there haven't been any new agriculture disputes at the WTO since uh, – early 2017 when the United States took two cases against China. And in the China negotiations, we got China to agree to not appeal the decisions from those panels. Um, but it is affecting other cases um, because if you have no final appellate decision, you're sort of in limbo as to whether a country did lose or not. So clearly it, it needs to be fixed. Ambassador Tai. Uh, recently came out and indicated that she thinks the entire dispute settlement system uh, needs to be fixed, so not just the appellate body. I personally uh, don't disagree with that. I find it way too litigious and it takes too long. Um, there needs to be other avenues in order to take disputes and try and get decisions more quickly. Um, but again, that would be a multi-year process. So I don't see any end in sight in the short term. Um, but there does seem to be an interest in trying to start moving forward and trying to fix that, that um, dispute system. Yep. I've got DeLoss and then the Delaney. And so this is Ted. I would just add um, that. Ted, Ted looks like going to say something. No? Oh, go for it, DeLoss. DeLoss Yonke, Illinois Farm Bureau, RFD Radio Network. Uh, hopefully this is a short-term question if it's an issue at all, but do you see any role in food inflation, food price inflation, perhaps limiting potential customers or having any impact on international trade? Ted, Ted any thoughts on that? 
if you could if you could restate the question i i heard food inflation and yeah. anything we could do did i get it right so the yeah the question was uh, not, not not so much uh, action points but uh, wondering food price inflation and any impact that might have on uh, customers for us agricultural goods well, maybe. I mean, price uh, price of products and exchanges can always add a uh, factor, not to mention other things that go with congestion in ports and all those kinds of things. So I think it's something we've got to address uh, pretty squarely. Um, I think the biggest question is, are, are we, as, uh, as the administration is saying, are we in a transitory inflation where it will come down? That's the expectation. That's been advanced. Or is this is this uh, uh, is this a more permanent kind of thing? And as we go further and further, it seems to be leaning toward the latter more than the former. I'm not ready to make that judgment call yet, but I think that can have a negative effect on a lot of things. Now, let's be honest. Many people think that uh, food is underpriced right now, and if if that's the consumer's view, and if that can bring some profitability to our farmer and rancher, not just the processor and the retailer. Okay, that's the way decisions go. But I, I must admit, I'm a little worried because at a time when we're challenging and getting uh, uh, focused on the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals by the UN, this is the whole UN Food System Summit effort, which means feed people, feed them adequately. I get a, I get, I get more than a little worried when we start seeing inflation of food set in, and particularly at the pace that we have seen increases in price these last three, four months. So it's on my watch list. I've got some Google alerts on a few publications to stay current on it. Sharon, any, any thoughts on that, or we gonna let? Ted I am not the economist, so I'm gonna <laughs> Fair pass. Fair enough, Delaney. Delaney Howell, Ag News Daily Podcast. Sharon, you mentioned that the Phase One trade deal doesn't necessarily end December 31st, but you also mentioned that Ambassador Tai wasn't really keen on pushing forward with a Phase Two. After December 31st happens, what do you foresee happening with the U.S.-China relationship and trade? Yeah, I'm actually um, just very pleased when Catherine Tai gave a speech recently on China. I mean, she does intend to engage with China, and it's clear to me that the goal here is to maintain a constructive dialogue um, and uh, not revert back to some kind of trade war. So I'm actually a very optimistic uh, that uh, through that dialogue, um, there can be um, constructive conversation to the benefit of U.S. agriculture. I think her focus will tend to be on non-agricultural issues uh, with China. Um, and then again, as I said, I think the big question um, will be what does China do with um, its process for exempting U.S. ag products from its retaliatory tariffs? And I think that could could have an impact on our, our trade in, uh, next year. So that's But that's still a question mark. Well, and Sharon, when we saw the Biden administration plan or announce its conversation with President Xi over the weekend, uh, we also saw that they said that uh, the tariffs, supply chain issues really weren't going to be uh, top of mind for the Biden administration going into that dialogue. I guess I say that to ask, 
where where does trade policy fit within the U.S.-China relationship right now? I mean, is it still at the forefront the way it was with the Trump administration, or are there other concerns within other policy concerns within the Biden administration that might be kind of overshadowing the some of the trade policy priorities? Well, I think it's just a, a an an the answer is the the level. Um, you know, President. Uh, Biden is very much focused on the overall um, trade relationship with China and foreign policy. I have a son, an an officer in the U.S. Navy based in Japan that spends a lot of time worrying about China. So, you know, all of that foreign policy aspect, what happened in Hong Kong, Taiwan, forced labor in Xinjiang, there's a lot that he is focused on. And he's made clear that, you know, Ambassador Tai is responsible for the trade relationship with China, and she is having those those dialogues. So in the Biden administration, I think it is very much front and center, um, and quite frankly, it's, it's where I think it should be uh, with the cabinet officer responsible for trade. Mm-hmm. Got a little more than five minutes left here, and barring any question from the audience, I can certainly come up with another couple. But uh, seeing none, uh, as you know, we, we've talked a little bit about the Biden administration pursuing a little bit more of a of a worker centric trade policy uh, is you know probably one way to put it. But we've also seen that this administration uh, has been a, a lot more vocal on the environmental uh, stage, uh, both domestically and internationally. You know, we saw all of the the speeches and actions uh, announced at COP26 here in the last couple of weeks, wondering what potential level of influence that might have on U.S. agriculture via either the export channels or changes to domestic production practices. Uh, Ted, I'll, I'll let you start on this one. Sure. Well, overall, I'm pleased, but let me start with a big caveat. We haven't seen a lot of details yet from the COP26 conference Uh, Even the AIM for Climate Initiative, which is the president's announced program, we just haven't seen a lot of details. And with a farmer, the details really, really matter. So that's a huge caveat. But that said, I have to say that I'm fairly pleased with Secretary Bill Sack and the administration's positioning of AIM for Climate, which is their primary international focus with respect to agriculture. And I'll tell you why. Uh, out of the UN Food Systems Summit effort, where uh, the EU clearly stated, I mean, it's very clear they want to push the EU Green Deal onto the world stage. And there are some very draconian pieces to that. Draconian. That's the right word. I'm not trying to uh, be inflammatory. It's the right word. Uh, and so aim for climate, uh, per Vilsack and the administration, is being positioned with the world as the alternative to farm to fork or EU Green Deal. And it allows climate smart agriculture. Uh, they were wise not to enforce uh, out of COP26 things like methane controls out of livestock. I think those are coming down anyway based on commitments that many of the commodity groups and the farm groups have already stated. So that was wise. And so I like what I see now. But I, hanging out here is the big caveat, and we haven't seen a lot of details. Anybody that's going to take on farm and fork, and I'm pleased with the respectful juxtapositioning that Secretary Bill Sack has used, is a good thing for the world, and it's a good thing for addressing hunger now to 2050. So in that sense, I'll leave that on a positive note. Sharon, your thoughts on, on the environmental policy and potential impact on U.S. agriculture? 
Yeah, and I think um, we're at a really good point right now for American agriculture to be paying attention to this. And I tend to, to focus on what's happening at the World Trade Organization in this sphere. Um, you know, conversations that occur at the United Nations, which is what Ted was talking about, can tend to wind up in uh, proposals or text or rules at the World Trade Organization, and it's those rules that can have impact. So I think now is the time for U.S. agriculture to be thinking about uh, sustainability, environmental – I'll say sustainability broadly because it's not just environmental. It has to be also economic and, and social if you want to talk about it. And what do we want to see as far as a direction globally on trade rules? Now is the time to be formulating that. Um, I'm working with a group of, of organizations uh, to start – thinking about those those types of things. Uh, we have some Latin American countries who are already starting to, to put some proposals at the WTO. But I think now is the time. And what we saw in the Food Systems Summit and the preparations for that is American agriculture really is doing an awful lot in that area um, and needs to be doing more to be making sure that everyone knows what the great work is being done by our farmers and ranchers on a daily basis uh, to support um, environmental sustainability, economic sustainability as well of farms. So we've got about a minute and a half left here in our discussion, so I want to kick uh, – I'll give you both 45 seconds apiece here, and uh, Ted, uh, I'll, I'll start with you on this one, and we'll wrap things up with Sharon. Your thoughts on when we gather at this event together next year, the biggest uh, trade agricultural trade issue on, on the agenda at, uh, at this year's convention next year? Very good question. I have a few thoughts. Uh, first of all, have USMCA concerns been resolved at some level? And Sharon very eloquently talked about the dairy issue to the north and to the south. It's the uh, very different philosophy employed by President AMLO on things like pesticide and biotech registration. So that's the first one because USMCA is being held up by the former administration, by this administration, as the model that we'd like to follow. And I think Sarah mentioned that as well. So how are we doing on USMCA? Clearly, you have to ask the question, how is it going with China? But I think the close second to that one is, how is it going with a lot of other countries? Because we are so focused on China, as we should, that I don't think enough attention is being paid to how we're raising our exports. And there is goodwill with so many other countries around the world with their purchases. Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd say that's a two-part uh, two one. Uh, I think you've got to ask how is the China-Taiwan issue going? Um, and then finally, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring all of you squarely back to the EU Green Deal. It is a great deal more threat than most have written or spoken about. And I think uh, we have to see how that is going or not. You can say that a good judge of that is how successful is the Aim for Climate Initiative and the countries that are signing up to align, participate with the U.S. on that versus those that might be signed up for the uh, alternative because uh, we could have we could have the makings of a very, very large wedge uh, in all of global ag if that doesn't go well. I'll leave on a fourth one. How's Codex doing? I used to control I used to manage the Codex team. I still think it's one of the finest creations that global governments have ever made. It's a chance for world uh, countries around the world to be felt 
to feel safe in their adoption of pesticides, in formulas, food colorings, you name it, whatever goes through Codex. And as goes Codex, I think in large part goes global trade. Those are my four. Very good. Sharon, your thoughts on the biggest uh, biggest thing on the agenda next year? Yeah, and I'll, I'll put it, um, I'll identify two. Um, and I know I keep saying this, and it's, you know, the World Trade Organization, it's hard for, for farmers and, and ranchers to get really terribly excited about it. But if the meetings at the end of the month actually do launch negotiations, I think the big question and focus will be on what happens to farm support um, and, and farm subsidies um, here and around the world and what's the impact of those on international trade, particularly as we look at Congress starting um, on a new farm bill. And then, like Ted, I think the second one, I'm, I'm optimistic, have to be optimistic, uh, that actually hopefully we can be talking about negotiations for free trade agreements um, with, with countries um, to help us uh, catch back up to, to other countries in, in our export markets. Well, Dawson, I am certainly going to be sad tomorrow when we both take off here from NAFB, but we are going to continue to share this content for some time. So folks, be sure to tune in at agnewsdaily.com or wherever you get your podcast to stay in tune. Just be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you do listen. With that, Dawson, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.